Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We got in the shower, like I said, and then all of a sudden, by the time we got hunkered down here, it was gone, the roofs was gone, and you know, they always say that you hear a train coming. Well, this was a big train to come through here. Well, that is the truth. Wow. Man, oh man, that was a woman in Farmerville, Louisiana. Talking about the damage a tornado left behind overnight, we're going to take you there live in just a moment. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. But first, top congressional negotiators say there's been a breakthrough on a spending bill that would keep the government funded for a full year. Also, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried now being held without bail after he was arrested in the Bahamas. Despite pleading with a judge to be freed because of his vegan diet and ADD, we are live in Nassau. Also, another looming emergency at the southern border, why the Biden administration is preparing for an overwhelming surge there. And over-the-counter medicines disappearing from store shelves. What is causing this shortage? But we do begin with a breakthrough. Some good news on Capitol Hill. Congressional negotiators announcing they have an agreement on the framework of a spending deal that will keep the government funded for a full year. Lauren Fox joins us live from Capitol Hill this morning. A deal, and it's not... It's like the 10th hour, not the 11th hour, I guess. <laughs> exactly. This is a significant step forward, Poppy. After ha- being at a logjam for the last several weeks, negotiators announcing last night that they do have an agreement on a framework. Obviously, there's still a lot of work ahead. They have to negotiate hundreds of pages and dole out millions and billions of dollars for the U.S. government. But obviously, this is a significant breakthrough, a significant development. And Senator Roy Blunt, a Republican appropriator, told me yesterday they were getting down to the final seconds where it was going to be physically possible to actually move this bill through the House, the Senate, and get it signed by the president before the Christmas holiday. One thing is that's so notable, uh, and this is reporting from you and your colleagues overnight, the divide between Mitch McConnell wanting to get something done and Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, soon to maybe be House Majority Leader, and is, and I guess I can say this at 6 a.m., hell no. That's a quote from him on supporting the agreement. So what does that mean for all of this? Well, there's a whole group of people in Washington who are lawmakers who we like to refer to, Poppy, as being a vote no, hope yes group of people. And I think that's where Kevin McCarthy is right now. He knows that getting this spending bill passed before he takes the speaker's gavel, if he takes the speaker's gavel, is going to be a huge breakthrough for him because he knows that he's going to be looking over his shoulder at his right flank for the months ahead. And he probably wouldn't be able to cut a deal with Democrats because there are going to be so many concessions he's going to have have to give conservatives in in order to get that speaker's gavel. So McCarthy in a very difficult position here. And like you said, telling his caucus yesterday that he was a hell no on this spending deal. That just gives you a little bit of preview of what this is going to look like when you have a Democratic Senate, a Republican House potentially led by Kevin McCarthy and the president of the United States, a Democrat. It's going to be a big mess next year when it comes to legislation. Oh, great. A lot to look forward to. Hope. 
Vote no, hope yes. That's a new one. All right, Lauren, thank you. And this morning, a crisis at the southern border. Biden administration sending additional Border Patrol agents to El Paso, Texas, amid a surge in illegal crossings. This all comes as a Trump-era policy known as Title 42 is set to expire next Wednesday. It was implemented during the height of the pandemic. Now, these 19 Republican-led states are asking a federal appeals court to keep Title 42 in place, which largely bars asylum seekers from entering the United States. Straight now to CNN's Priscilla Alvarez, live for us in Washington, D.C. this morning. Good morning, Priscilla. This is being called a federal crisis situation on the border right now. That's right. And simply put, this is a challenge of too many people and not enough personnel and resources. And it's unfolding in El Paso, Texas, which is now seeing 2,500 migrants per day. To remind viewers, John, this is a city of about 700,000 people. So it's a strain on their infrastructure, on transportation, on shelter. And city officials are raising the alarm of what may just be the beginning of this challenge, John. You say you have some new reporting on the growing internal concerns the administration has as Title 42 comes to an end. What do you know about that, Priscilla? Homeland Security officials are telling me they are worried within the administration, concerned. But it's not just them. Lawmakers are calling the administration officials on a more frequent basis as this termination looms, asking about preparations. In fact, we learned about a call with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and President uh, Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, about those concerns and what is going to happen along the U.S.-Mexico border. And it really speaks, Don, to what is a very complex policy and political political moment for this administration. All right, Priscilla Alvarez in Washington for us this morning. Thank you very much. Caitlin? All right, also this morning, the so-called crypto king, Sam Bankman-Fried, is waking up in a Bahamian jail. His bond has been denied. The judge calling the founder and former CEO of FTX a flight risk as he awaits extradition to the United States to face fraud charges. CNN's Carlos Suarez is live in the Bahamas for CNN this morning with more on this. Carlos, you... What struck me was about this court appearance yesterday was hearing that U.S. attorney for the Southern District in New York saying, yes, you can commit fraud in in a T-shirt and shorts. Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, Caitlin. Uh, As for the uh, 30-year-old, well, uh, throughout that entire hearing, he kept his head down for most of it. Uh, As you said, he told the judge uh, that he was going to go ahead and fight uh, the extradition to the U.S., and you can understand why, because if he is convicted of the charges out of uh, New York City, he's facing the possibility of up to 115 years in prison. Now, during the hearing, Bankford Freed also told the judge uh, that he's been taking medication for some time now to treat insomnia, depression, as well as attention deficit disorder. It's a point that his attorney uh, wanted to convey ahead of the judge's decision that he was going to be denied bail. The judge, of course, made sure to tell SB that that medication would continue to be made available to him while he is in prison here in the Nassau, uh, in the in Nassau rather. Uh, Caitlin? And I understand that his parents were actually there when he got arrested, and now they're also fa- facing scrutiny. What's going on? So uh, both his parents have been in the Bahamas uh, for several days now. At least that's what we're being told. Uh, His mother and his father, they were in court yesterday. They sat behind me throughout this entire hearing. Now, the two of them, they did not want to talk about the allegations that were made against their son, and they did not want to talk about uh, the fact that FTX's new CEO says that the two of them are being looked into the role that they may have played in the company. 
Carlos, thank you so much. Okay, if you have been dealing with a sick child lately, you've probably uh, had trouble, right? Finding over-the-counter medicine, Tylenol, Motrin, ibuprofen for them. It is happening all over the country. Children's painkillers, fever reducers are in very, very high demand. And this could not come at a worse time. Our medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Derula, joins us now. They know. It Those shelves to look me. like that? They, they do. Yeah. They, like, they do in some places. So many pharmacies. I told you I spent an hour walking around Brooklyn the other week looking. They all looked like that. Yeah. So this is not just Tylenol or Motrin, not just the brand names. It's the store names, too, ibuprofen, the generics. Why is this happening? It can be. It's really a demand issue, as we were discussing, this combination we keep talking about of RSV, COVID, and the flu. And it can be really unsettling. I'm a parent of two young kids to open your medicine cabinet and not have Tylenol or Motrin there. We use these so often. So, you know, we've talked about drugs like amoxicillin and Adderall, right? But for something like this, it's really a staple. And so the FDA is not actually labeling this a true shortage at this point. Although you see the pictures, clearly there are issues. Um, they are working with manufacturers. Manufacturers say they are working 24-7 to resolve this issue. Hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, um, the shelves will be restocked. But for the time being, it's tough for parents, and they may have to go to multiple stores to find what they need or try different brands than exactly what they would be used to using. Was it last week, Poppy, that I asked you about? Like it was such a good lesson. question. Ask it again. Yeah, so, so she's a parent, and, but you're the doctor, so you would know. <laughs> I, I said, well, can you, can you manage, like, can you split the, the pill to give it to a kid, or you can't like you just an can't adult do that? Pill, yeah. An adult-sized pill. So not, it's not, not really. really a great idea. Yeah. I mean, there are ways to do it, but the recommendation is if you are going to do that, you really should talk to a pharmacist and your doctor and have them walk you through exactly how to do that. Um, there are some other no-nos. For example, don't give your child aspirin if they're under 18 in the setting of a viral infection that can cause a rare and serious condition known as Rye syndrome, which is, can cause brain and liver inflammation. You also don't want to put them in a cold bath, right? So you feel your kid burning up and the temptation is to put them in a cold bath. If the temperature rises too fast, that can cause a febrile seizure. And then some parents may have other over-the-counter drugs that have other things in them that with Tylenol Motrin, like decongestants, and you don't want to give that to your child if they don't need those other components, really. Um, as well. So those are the no-nos. Um, but there are some things that parents can do. <laughs> hey, should we talk about? Like yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's important to remember that if you can't give Tylenol, for example, you may be able to give Motrin or ibuprofen or oh, Advil if okay. the child is over six months. <clears throat> you can give the generic version. Um, in some cases, suppositories, uh, of course, we hate using those. but if buy them. Exactly. Um, or chewables if the child is old enough to chew if they're over two. Um, and then not every fever needs to be treated. So it is the gut instinct as a parent to, to want to give that if you feel your child yeah. has a fever. But if they're over three months and they are febrile and they're able to f eat and drink and they're you know active, it's not necessary to treat it. The fever is actually the body's natural response to fighting infection. Now, it's different, clearly, if it's a very high fever, if they're very young or if it's lasted for a long time. Um, cold compresses work, keeping the kid. Lots of times I remember my parents used to put a lot of clothes on me to make me sweat. Actually, you want to take the clothes off yeah. and, and let them cool off and keep the room pretty cool. Um, so there are other things parents and, can do. And good reminder that um, it saved us a lot. If you, you can switch off ibuprofen and Tylenol, Motrin and Tylenol, Correct. they work differently. Right. So it's like every four hours is Tylenol, six is Motrin. Exactly. You, okay. That's what I was going to say. Read the time. I know. Yep. So you can switch <laughs> off. Thank you, Doc. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, it's hard to believe that today marks 10 years since an unthinkable tragedy struck Connecticut. A gunman entered Sandy Hook Elementary School, killed 20 first graders, six adults. Here's how it unfolded on CNN's air. Watch.
And it is just coming across the wires here, uh, reading straight from it. Connecticut State Police responding to reports of a shooting, we are told. Some heartbreaking news now from a law enforcement source with knowledge of the investigation that close to 20 people have been killed at school shooting, and among them, at least 10 are children. It was when they told the parents, all these parents were waiting for their children to come out. They thought that they were, you know, still alive. There's 20 parents that were just told that their children are dead. The majority of those who died today were children. Uh, beautiful little kids between the ages of 5 and 10 years old. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. A very, very emotional moment uh, for the president of the United States. I, I dare I say for all of America, much of the world right now. You don't often see a president of the United States showing such emotion, wiping away tears as he speaks of these little kids, five to 10 year old kids. The majority of the victims who were killed in this mass shooting in Connecticut. Well, later on in the show, we're going to be talking to a Sandy Hook survivor. She was a second grader at the time. She is now 17 years old. That's the worst day. Yeah, I know. It was the worst day. It's um, when you've been doing, when you do this business for a while, there are things that you remember, stories that change your life. This one. This one is the probably the one that changed me as a person, being reporting the breaking news and then getting off the anchor desk and then rushing there and seeing those people. I, had to, I, had, I hate to share the story, but I, I think it's important. I remember being there, 10 days, I forget what it was, and there were funerals were going on, and it was my last live shot. And the, I was... I was I was like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. But anyway, it was my last live shot. There was this little coffin in the back of the hearse. There was a dad on one side with his head on the window and a mom on the other side with the, her head on the window. And I just remember them saying after the live shot, they said, you're clear, you can go home. And I thought, I can go home, but these people can't go home. Yeah that they are going to have to live with this for the rest of their lives. And for me, it was ending, and I was happy to get in the car and go home, but for them, it was just beginning their lives without their children. And that story changed, I mean, I think it changed all of us. Don't you agree? Uh, yeah. I didn't have kids yet, Yeah. but um, I went days after you guys. I was up there a few days later um, because I was away when it happened. and. Um, sat down with the coroner and the mm. funeral director, the only funeral director in the town, mm. who had to bury 11 of the 26. Um, yeah. And from that day forward, I knew that everything that matters, that's everything that matters, yeah. is your kids. So. Yeah. Anyways, we're going to be joined by a survivor later, well, as you said. And not just the, the fact that she's... 17, I think that's so striking to people to think of them as these little kids. You know, my little sister was their age when this happened. Mm. She was in kindergarten, yeah. and she's 16 now. And it was something that just, it, like, I went home. I drove home from college that day. And because we just... Of, because of it. We were going home anyway, but we, it was, it really, like, completely changed, like, the perspective. And I think for everyone. And to see all the parents 
of those children, how they've used the last decade to really speak out. Mm-hmm. And they come on CNN a lot. They go on. They're on Capitol Hill a bunch. They've really used that in a way to, to honor the lives yeah. of their children. They just keep going. They just keep going. And I can't wait to hear from her. So thank you for sharing all of that, everyone. So we'll, we move on now. After President Biden signed the Respect for Marriage Act into law, I sat down with the survivors of that mass shooting at a Colorado LGBTQ club, nightclub. Their thoughts on the legislation. That's next. We're also live on the ground after a tornado ripped through parts of Louisiana overnight. You could see the destruction here. Trailer park gone. The trailer's sitting over there in the woods. Like all this stuff y'all see over here, all this rubbish, just straight trailers. This, this, everything that y'all see over here. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Love is love. Right is right. Justice is justice. These things are fundamental things that America thinks matter. That was the president of the United States, Joe Biden, speaking at the White House as he signed the Respect for Marriage bill into law. The landmark legislation will provide new federal protections for same-sex and interracial couples. The signing comes just over three weeks since the deadly mass shooting at Club Q, an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs. A gunman opened fire inside the club last month killing five and injuring many more. I spoke at the White House with Club Q owner Matthew Haynes, the club's bartender Michael Anderson, shooting survivor James Slaw, and GLAAD President Sarah Kate Ellis on the importance of this new legislation. How are you doing, James? It's been three weeks now since the Club Q shooting. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm doing better, relatively speaking. I mean, I know we did an interview back when I was in the hospital. Um, bullet in my arm, shattered humerus uh, rod through my arm, that surgery. Um, luckily, I have a lot of mobility. It's coming back. I still have to go through PT, most likely. Um, but, yeah, you know, better relatively. And seeing all of this, this is, this is it. This is, like they said, inspiring. That's the best word. That's the best way to put it. As a club owner, did you ever think in a million years that, obviously, that this would happen? And you've spoken about that. I mean, but yeah, you, I can go further back. As a, as a gay male coming out and struggling when I was coming out, never would I imagine I'd be here at the White House actually seeing that, that our right to marry is now protected by federal law. And then, of course, then you throw in our little club in Colorado Springs that never did we think that it would have a voice. Um, and, of course, for all the wrong reasons is why, why we're here, um, is because we were attacked and, um, and our community was invaded. But, um, but again, this is, as we'll use our word, inspiring. Yeah. This, this has been, <laughs> been inspiring, and, and it, 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 it gives you hope, and uh, it's actually probably the most uplifting thing, you know, certainly that, that I would say any, all three of us have experienced yeah. since the incident happened at Club Q. When I spoke to you right after it happened, yeah. you didn't, hadn't had much sleep. But, you know, you're like having trouble putting words together. I am now because I'm exhausted, but I'm also overwhelmed yeah. by being here. And it's, it's hard to like put this you know, yeah. right into context. Yeah. 
Did you think three weeks later that you'd be standing at the White House with the President of the United States after such a horrific event? Um, I, I, I did not, but I'll tell you this moment today stands alone by itself as something historic that we're all very proud of. But with the backdrop of what just happened, it does show you love overpowers hate in the end. And no, a month ago, I was telling him, we never imagined we'd be in Washington, D.C. Or, or even here today at the White House particularly. But we are here today and we're grateful for that. Sir, Kate, I have to ask you, does this help you think, do you think when you have the president of the United States and, the, and, the, and it is now law and people see, you know, families that are part of the LGBTQ um, plus community, do you think it helps bring down the temperature? Should we feel hopeful about this? How, put this into context. I think this is a great step in the right direction. We need a lot more, though. It's a lot that's going on in terms of the the negative and rhetoric that's happening right now that we continue to hear that is not stopping and then is amplified by social media. And that hate on social media is turned into action. And that's what we saw at Club Q. And we will continue to see that until we turn that down. Today was a great step in the right direction, but we need many, many more. So give us some words of encouragement or hope, however you're feeling right now. So I'm feeling hopeful. Um, I got into the hospital and my first thoughts were, I'm not going to let this beat me. Bullets will not stop love. Bullets will not stop our community and the majority of the community around us, our allies. And we're, we're going to prevail. Love wins. Mm. What was it like? <laughs> I was, why? Well, um, well, let, yeah, no. let me just say something. Um, James has a sister. She was shot five times, and she is recovering. She's doing better, and there was, there was another young man who was there who was shot, but he didn't want to be on camera. But yeah. I just want to get that before we no, chat. No, sorry to yeah. jump in. Just I caught right. um, Tim and Don on with Jake yesterday from there. Yeah. Um, just I to know. be there, what it was like. Jake Tapper, like, pulled Tim in. It was, um, Caitlin, you know what it's like when everyday people come to the White House, right? It, I guess, you're, yes. you're in awe. It gives it, um, people feel how important it is. The, um, the whole country is behind you. You have the president of the United States who's saying you are legitimate, basically, that your marriage and your love is legitimate. Now, you know that in your heart, but to have it recognized by the president of the United States and by, you know, the, the leaders in Washington, it just, um, you know, it just says that, okay, I'm just like every other American. And and just and having those people there who have been shot and injured in a club just was like an added thing on top of it that said maybe we're moving in a better direction. Yeah, yeah. especially with like all the rhetoric and what we talked about around that shooting and to yeah. be able to see them have a moment at the yeah. White House is really nice. I thought about you, Poppy. Why? Because as Tim and I were standing there and you've known us for such a long time, you knew me before Tim, right? In previous relationships and all that stuff. <laughs> so We've been on a journey. We've been on a journey together. But I thought about you because, um, look, this is just how we grow up in America, like, you know, girls think about when I get married, for the most part, I'm generalizing here, yeah. I want this beautiful princess wedding or whatever, and it's something that you don't really think twice about. It's just normal. But I never had that, right? I never thought that I would be married. I never thought that the state would, like, legitimize my relationship. And so I thought about, like, going to your wedding and going to my friend's weddings, uh, and then going to now to a same-sex couple's weddings. And now I feel like, you know, people can grow up and say, I... I, I want to be a princess, two princes. You can have two princes, <laughs> two princes, two queens, princesses. two kings, whatever it is. So um, 
It's about it time. Good. So congratulations. So, I'm so glad I'm going to be joining you soon, I'm, lady. We're going to be there <laughs> with you. Flower girl? <laughs> Ring bearer. Here you go. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. It's a lot of pressure. It's a big one. Yeah. Um, we're really glad you were there. Thank you. And, yeah, yeah what a happy. day. Thank you. Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> more yeah, ways than one. All right. Uh, turning the page here to something really fascinating, guys. It is happening from Republican governors across the country calling it a national security concern. They are banning TikToks on government devices in their states. Also, Dr. Sanjay Gupta is going to join us to fact check Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his latest effort to cast doubt on COVID vaccines. Welcome back. These are live pictures out of Jackson, Mississippi this morning. Coming up on the show in the next few hours, we'll take you live to Farmersville, Louisiana, where a tornado hit overnight, injuring at least 20 people. Plus, how the late civil rights trailblazer and Congressman John Lewis is going to be honored soon. Also, the stage is almost set for the World Cup final. There is a big debate before kickoff, though. Is Messi the greatest of all time? We'll discuss. But first, Republican Senator Marco Rubio has announced bipartisan legislation to ban TikTok from operating in the United States. The senator is citing fears that the app could be used to spy on Americans by foreign adversaries like China. TikTok spokeswoman responded, writing, it's troubling that ra- rather than encouraging the administration for the administration to conclude its national security review of TikTok, some members of Congress have decided to push for a politically motivated ban that will do nothing to advance the national security of the United States. So this legislation comes as a wave of Republican governors in at least 10 states have now banned TikTok on government-owned devices. Joining us now to talk about this, CNN anchor and correspondent Audie Cornish, CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Uh, great to have you guys. I just want to clarify um, something here. The, the China concern is because ByteDance owns TikTok, and that is a, that is a Chinese... Um, ByteDance? That's what it's called. Yeah. That's a huge Chinese tech company. Um, but, Sarah, let's just begin with you, because TikTok's argument here, CFIS is reviewing it, right? That's what they mean by Congress is still look, looking at this, the administration. But <clears throat> the, can you explain here the facts about where this data goes vis-a-vis China? Yeah, so TikTok, as you mentioned, is owned by a Chinese company. When you're a Chinese company, obviously you are controlled by the state. Now, they have two separate versions of TikTok. There is the U.S. version and there's a Chinese version, which is actually called Dian. What TikTok has tried to argue is that the U.S. version sends no data back to China. However, over the past few years, there's been various reports that suggest that maybe the data security isn't as tight as it needs to be. As a result, TikTok has struck partnerships with Oracle, a U.S. data company, to try to ensure that those leaks don't happen and that data is secure in the U.S. The problem, Poppy, is that, of course, people don't trust it. And so right now, as you mentioned, TikTok is undergoing a national security review with the Committee of Foreign Investment in the United States. The reason Marco Rubio and others, though, are taking action unilaterally outside of the government is they're arguing they're moving too slow. The CFIUS investigation started in the Trump administration in 2020. It's 2022, and it's still not resolved. There's some other context here, though, which is that the Chinese government actually mandates uh, potential access, should it choose, to the data for any of the companies that are basically Chinese-owned. So it's not a sort of unfounded 
um, fear. And there have been reports about the Chinese government's attempts to get access when and where it wants. The even broader context of that is that's kind of all apps. And there's been no real attempt over the last 25 years to try and regulate data privacy and security, in part because Silicon Valley and the innovation that our economy is based on is derived from that kind of lax regulation. So the focus is on China right now, but there's also a broader conversation to be had about, like, how do you control something that is also the engine um, for innovation? and under which a lot of the sort of creations of our modern apps are built on, which is us. We're the product, right? (laughs) Like our data, our privacy. I'm really struck by how we talk about TikTok now based on how we talked about it when I was covering the Trump administration. Obviously, Trump tweeted, you know, late one night coming back from an event that he was going to ban it. It freaked everybody out, especially, you know, all of the Gen Z people on TikTok. But he had a real pursuit there saying it needed to be sold, the concerns about what they were sharing. And now it's something that's just widely accepted as it is a threat. And the question is what to do about it. I mean, you hear Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, talk about it. You hear the FBI talk about it. You see the way the Biden administration says they have concerns about it. It's become, you know, a bipartisan concern about the threat that it poses potentially. And I think one of the reasons for that is in 2020, that's when TikTok started to really buy a lot of advertising, over a billion dollars worth of ads on Meta, which is Facebook and Instagram, and on Snapchat. That's how they were able to cement their dominance here. So in 2020, Donald Trump was waving a flag saying this could be a concern, of course, for political reasons. Him and other Republicans want to seem hawkish on China. Now, fast forward, TikTok has cemented its dominance here. If you look at any third-party data analysis firm, they will tell you it's the fastest-growing app. It's the most widely consumed app by young people. That's why the conversation has changed. It's just become a much bigger presence in our lives right now. And people use it as a search engine. I mean, under the age of 30, there's a lot of research showing that people are using it to get their news. Um, people are using it to look up information that they just want the answer to. So it has a almost um, infrastructure-like kind of... Um, role in some people's lives at this point. Over the age of 32. I mean, not me. Yeah. I'm talking my sister, who is five <laughs> years older than me, is obsessed with TikTok. Yes. It's, it's every text, you know, thing that she sends, it's like a TikTok link. Well, and, like all algorithm-driven things, it yeah. gives you what you want and more yeah. of it. There are, like, very nerdy concerns we can get in the weeds about, about sort of what you can do with that data, how it can inform your development of artificial intelligence, mm. um, which people are talking about now because of Chatbot and Lensa, all those kind of AI devices that we're just playing with right now. But they have real implications going forward. Listen, at that- I'm in a happy mood this morning, obviously, because it's great. So I just have to share something my mom says. She says, um, well, watching you guys this a.m., Audie Cornish is beautiful and her skin is flawless. She's always so calm and knowledgeable. And I responded, love her. And she said, me too. And she's so smart. Oh, my God. Let so me, th- what's go. her Venmo? <laughs> And, and she's uh, right. Sarah, there will be, I'm sure, a text about you yeah, shortly. Yeah, I agree come. with your mom. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I thought you were going to your mom sent a TikTok or something. I was no. like, where well, is this I, going? My sister, I can, I, if I open my sister's text, it's like all. TikTok. I know. The problem is it's fun, right? You don't want to, you can't tell a bunch of people who are addicted to this thing because they think it's fun yeah. that it's a security threat. That is a very difficult sell. Well, Trump went through can. that. And well, now let's see if they can with this Oracle deal, which is big. Yeah. They're not done with it yet. Let's see if they can make it as secure as needs to be. But if they can't, Poppy, that's why all these competitors are launching TikTok rivals. So Instagram and Facebook have launched Reels. Reels. Reddit has acquired Dubsmash. You know, Snapchat has created Spotlight. They're waiting in the wings for this app to potentially get sanctioned or banned so that they can move in. They need need me to, you know, 
Pay, Bye, guys. pay for the show. See ya. Get to commercial. Thank you all. Agree with all the sentiments. Feel the exact same about you, Sarah Fisher. Thank you. Ahead, a CNN exclusive on the advanced weaponry the U.S. plans to send to Ukraine. Plus, we are live in storm-ravaged Louisiana. Yeah, I'm located in northern Louisiana where a devastating tornado ripped through this community behind me. I'll have a live report showing you around the damaged area and to talk about some of the specifics of what's ahead. Coming up after the break. I'm not, you know, hurt or nothing. Well, I'm hurt, but I'm okay because I'm still alive. I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful that me and my family are okay. Yeah, they bringing the people out of my house that we had here. We just jumped, got, grabbed the kids and got in the kitchen closet. I'm glad we didn't go in the hallway closet because that hallway is destroyed. The closet, everything is caved in. Damn dog in the wind. We opened the back door, dog in the wind. Goddamn tornado about to take the dog. The trailer's sitting over there in the woods. Like, all this stuff y'all see over here, all this rubbish, just straight trailers. This, this, everything that y'all see over here. What you just heard, that was just one family's account of some very scary moments after a deadly tornado barreled across northern Louisiana. Officials outside Shreveport say that one child was killed and the mother is missing after the twister struck Cato Parish. And at least 20 people were injured when the tornado ripped through a mobile home park in Farmerville. And that's where we find CNN's meteorologist Derek Van Dam for CNN This Morning with the very latest on that. Uh, Derek, so much devastation just before the holidays. What are you witnessing? What are you seeing there on the ground? Yeah, Don, it's heartbreaking considering that it's right before the holidays and uh, that this particular community in northern Louisiana took what appears to be a direct hit. Of course, we are still uh, in the shroud of darkness. Uh, we'll be revealing a lot more once the sun comes up. Uh, but just hearing that uh, soundbite from the, one of the survivors a moment ago, it's, it's incredible to, to think that someone can survive what I am about to show you. So I'm going to try and tie this together for you, but you're looking at the piece of a roof. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of the tornado damage uh, that moved through Caddo Parish. We're in Union Parish as we speak, but uh, those the tornadoes, when it makes contact with the ground, uh, it literally takes that vortex kind of spinning up anything in its path, including uh, roofs of houses. And, and we've seen, you know, destruction from tornadoes before. But uh, what is likely the top of the roof I just showed you came from the building that's directly behind me here. And uh, this is part of the Union Villa apartment complex. This is actually the office for uh, the apartment complex. Now, the apartment complex that you cannot see uh, over my left shoulder here, we're actually blocked by a, a heavy police presence within this area, uh, was completely flattened. And uh, the devastation there is, uh, is catastrophic. And uh, just hearing some reports from the local sheriffs within this area, there were 20 to 25 injuries, some critically injured as well. And when you're talking about uh, taking buildings and wiping them off of their foundation, uh, it's a miracle that anybody would be able to survive something like this, Don. Mm. Derek Van Dam. Derek, be careful out there. A lot of things blowing around, a lot of debris, and we're thinking of everyone there this morning. Appreciate it. And straight ahead, comedian Jay Leno giving his first interview since his burn accident, what he remembers from that day. And who is actually the GOAT? The greatest of all time? Messi or Ronaldo? The debate when the Athletics' Sam Stayskull joins us next.
with an emphatic victory over Croatia. Star forward Lionel Messi punched his ticket to the World Cup final this Sunday, renewing a very familiar debate in the soccer world. This has been happening for like a decade now. Who is better, Messi or Ronaldo? And who is the greatest player of all time? Joining us now to answer that age-old question is Sam Stasekel. He is a staff writer at The Athletic covering soccer. Um, I just want to answer. What, what's the answer? Uh, I think it's messy, and I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> what about the people reasons. who disagree with you? Well, you know, I think this World Cup has really put it in pretty stark relief. You've seen Ronaldo kind of go out in, in a little bit of disgrace is strong, but it wasn't a great tournament for him. He, he ended the, the tournament on the bench um, for Portugal, uh, not a starter, uh, was publicly kind of almost feuding with his coach about that. Uh, wasn't a great look. Messi, on the other hand, has, has been at his peak. Uh, five goals, four assists in four games. Yesterday against Croatia in the semifinal, we saw that penalty that you guys just showed uh, emphatically drove that one home. But even more impressive was his assist where, where he took one of the best defenders at the tournament, uh, a Croatia center back, dribbled him the, the length of the entire half, uh, rounded him in the box and set a teammate up for a tap in. And um, what he's able to do, not just scoring goals, but setting up his teammates is pretty remarkable. And that's a, that's a difference between him and Ronaldo. <laughs> Don and I just think you should continue yeah. the interview. Because <laughs> after Croatia I, lost, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> do the stats show that, though? Because Ronaldo's been around for longer, hasn't he? Than yeah, a Messi. couple of years. Couple All right, years so longer. do the stats actually show that so Ronaldo the greatest? Ronaldo has more goals, okay. um, but on a per-game basis, Messi right. has more. And, and when it comes to assists, Messi has more, period, um, per game, overall, total, the whole deal. Uh, so really the World Cup is the only thing that is left on his list. And we'll see on Sunday if he's able to cross it off. And if, am I right, Messi became the oldest man to score five goals in the World Cup? Uh, that's, that that sounds that's... right. Um, you know, it's early for me. It's 6.53 in used the morning. This, this We're going with call. it. I'm not. So, but yeah, we can rock with it. Yeah. Uh, what about greatest of all time, like even compared to... You know, the greatest of all time? Yeah, so... You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, so the, the others that are in the conversation would be Maradona, who is Messi's Argentine countryman, um, and, and Pele, of yeah. course, the Brazilian. that's who I was thinking. Um, Maradona, you know, I think Messi has outstripped him big time on the club level. Um, and Pele, it's, it's tough to compare because, you know, he was playing 50, 60 years ago. And, and so it's, it's difficult to compare across eras with such a different sport, such a different landscape. Um, for me, what Messi is able to do, maybe, maybe it's because, you know, I get to see him in person <laughs> and we never got to watch Pele. Um, but for me, it's, it's Messi even over him. All right, what's going to happen today? You know, France is the overwhelming favorite. They have the more talented team, the more talented players. But Morocco, they've been pulling upsets left and right all tournament. Um, you know, being on the grounds in Qatar, uh, their fan base has been extraordinary. Um, and they kind of have the power of the Arab world behind them here, um, which, you know, they're, they're the de facto home team. So the crowd is going to be off the charts in favor for them. Um, I think France will win, but Morocco has been excellent defensively. So, so we'll see. It'll be a tough game. Yeah, we're excited to watch. Poppy especially. Yeah. I'll definitely be tuning in. <laughs> I'll be, so what time is it? I'll be sleeping. It's a, it's a 2 p.m. <laughs> yeah, I need to get some sleep. <laughs> I'll call you, wake you up. Yeah, let me know what happens. Text me. All right, Thank Sam. You. We'll be watching to see if your prediction is right. Thanks Thank, so much. Thanks so much, you guys.
Up next, we're going to talk about something really serious, the crisis that's unfolding on the border, how it's getting worse in recent days, and also how the Biden administration is preparing for what could be a surge of migrants. And new this morning, the Ukrainian military says that it shot down more than a dozen Iranian-made drones over Kyiv. We'll have more for you on the ground. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Freed was the CEO of crypto exchange FTX, which recently went belly up and cost investors $1.8 billion. What has this world come to when you can't trust the guy selling imaginary computer coins whose name is almost exactly Bankman Fraud? What's next? Don't get your annual checkup from Dr. Guy Deathkauser. Yeah, it's funny, though. A lot of people lost some dough, though. A lot of people, and that is very serious. Good morning, everybody. It is Wednesday, December 14th at 7 a.m. on the nose. And you heard Stephen Colbert there talking about accused crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried denied bail in the Bahamas after his high-profile arrest. We're going to tell you what some U.S. politicians are doing with the money he donated to them. Also, there is a bipartisan agreement on the framework of a one-year spending plan that sets the top two Republicans in Congress on a collision course. And a CNN exclusive report for you this morning, the Biden administration finalizing plans to ship Patriot missile defense systems to Ukraine. This is a move that could alter the outcome of Putin's war. Plus this. My face caught on fire, and I said to my friend, I said, Dave, I'm on fire. And then, oh my God, Dave, my friend, pulled me out and and jumped on top of me. Well, that's part of Jay Leno's first interview since suffering those serious burns. You're going to hear more straight ahead. Wow. We begin, though, with Democrats and Republicans agreeing on a framework of a budget that will fund the government for a full year. But it's the top two Republicans in Congress who do not agree with each other. Mitch McConnell is on board with this spending plan. But so far, it's a, and this is a quote, hell no from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Melanie Zanona is live on Capitol Hill for us this morning. Melanie, good morning. You're the one who interviewed him, right? And (laughs) so is this hell no, uh, I'm going to say it, but I really need this thing to pass? Yeah, absolutely. That is what Republicans really think McCarthy is doing here, that he is privately rooting for this to pass and that he's going to publicly vote no. And the reason for that is because he does not want to have to deal with the prospect of a government shutdown upon immediately becoming speaker, if he becomes speaker. But at the same time, he's been struggling to lock down the votes for the speakership, and his conservatives and hardliners have been pressing him to take a harder line on spending issues, to stand up to Mitch McConnell. And so that is why you're seeing this dynamic playing out on Capitol Hill. But sources are telling us that McConnell was really blindsided the other day when McCarthy went on Fox News and took a public swipe at McConnell. Republicans feel like McConnell's sort of jumping on the grenade here and getting this done, uh, and that McCarthy is taking these swipes in order to really shore up support from his conservative base for the speakership, Poppy. You're reporting on sort of how the two of them are colliding on this and have collided on so much over the last two months was the first thing I read this morning, and it's fascinating. Melanie, thanks very much. Don, thank you. So the Biden administration facing a big challenge this morning at the southern border. It is sending more agents to El Paso, Texas, as illegal crossings surge, with even more migrants waiting their chance to enter the United States. This all comes as Title 42 set to expire a week from today. The Trump era public health policy allowed the U.S. to quickly expel migrants 
El Paso officials sending this warning. Title 42 going away with the numbers we're seeing today is a is a true emergency for the community. It's a federal crisis that's happening within the in the border of El Paso. Well, the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas visited El Paso on Tuesday, meeting with local officials and the Customs and Border Protection workforce. There's a lot to explain here. With me now, CNN in Espanol anchor and correspondent Maria Santana. Good morning to you. Lots of questions. Uh, can you explain how Title 42 works? What's the process and what, how things change will change if it expires? So Title 42 is a public health policy. It was issued under the Trump administration. The CDC uh, issued this order to try to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And what the uh, order allowed officials at the border to do was to swiftly expel migrants either back to Mexico or back to their home country without allowing asylum seekers to request asylum in the United States as our law states. So it actually uh, suspended uh, the asylum law under this health emergency order. And what uh, officials have said is that it has been used 2.5 million times in the uh, years that it has been in place. Although that number um, is a little inflated, some critics say, because it actually encourages people to try to cross more times. So this actually includes that number, uh, multiple crossings by the same individual. So take us to the ground now. What does it look like right now on the ground? What are we seeing in El Paso? What we're seeing in El Paso from what a border official said is that 2,400, more than 2,400 migrants tried to cross every day uh, this weekend and that he called it a significant increase in illegal border crossings. Now, this, we have to point out, has nothing to do with uh, the lifting of Title 42 because it's still in place. It's not uh, supposed to end until next week, December 21st, per a court order. Um, and uh, DHS officials are saying that this is actually the result of criminal smuggling organizations. But, of course, local officials, state officials are pointing to this surge in order to pressure the administration about lifting Title 40. So the question is, where do these migrants want to go and what do they do after they where do they go after they get deported? Well, sadly, uh, many of them just stay in Mexico. Um, there's hundreds of migrants uh, living in Ciudad Juarez on the border with the United States. They've been there for months, some even for years, waiting for the opportunity to cross into Mexico. They don't want to go back to their home countries. They're fleeing dangerous condition, poverty, uh, the deterioration of the social and political systems in their country. Um, so they actually feel they're better off just waiting on the Mexican border in tents in these camps. And that has actually created a, a serious humanitarian crisis as well at our borders. Um, if Title 42 is lifted, what would happen is we would have to go back to how things were before, which is people come in, they get processed, they determine whether they have an actual asylum claim and they can either stay in the country or they're deported. Yeah, the question is, do we have the infrastructure to be able to do that now and how to improve that? It is urgent. Thank you very much, Maria. Appreciate that. Poppy? All right. This morning, a top Ukrainian military official has confirmed 13 drones aimed at Kyiv were shot down with some fragments from the weapons hitting buildings below. A Kyiv military official suggests the attacks were aimed at critical infrastructure in that capital city. Ukrainian television showed video of a drone fragment with the inscription for Reyazan, a reference to a previous drone strike in Russia that Moscow blamed on Ukraine. Also this morning, new signs of the growing frustration among some Russian soldiers on the front lines in Ukraine. A Ukrainian defense official has released audio of what they say is an intercepted call between two Russian soldiers purportedly calling home in eastern Russia. Listen to this. 
Hi, how are you? Yeah, we're here at the shooting grounds. We're freezing, really. We're training, digging foxholes. It's minus 15 degrees Celsius, damn it. About 60% of us are f***ing helpless. Going around the shooting grounds, for f***'s sake, losing their weapons, helmets, and their ammo cartridges. We all have to take a hazmat suit with us. What the f*** do we need that for? It's minus 15 degrees Celsius, damn it. We had to use the gas masks yesterday. It was minus 12 degrees. We tried our best, damn it. They wanted us to Damn it. They forced us to put on our gas masks outdoors, damn it. So CNN has not been able to verify that audio, but it is very consistent with previous reporting about the complaints of Russian troops. Also this morning, the United States is reportedly finalizing plans to honor Ukraine's long-running request for a long-range air defense system. CNN has learned advanced discussions are underway to send Patriot missiles to Kyiv. You've heard a lot about those. So what would this mean? Our Barbara Starr is live at the Pentagon this morning with the CNN exclusive reporting. Barbara, what does it mean? And why is the U.S. deciding to do this now? Well, the U.S. apparently changing its mind, hadn't wanted to do it, saw it as escalatory, but it's that barrage, ongoing day after day barrage of Russian attacks against civilian infrastructure, uh, power plants, the people of Ukraine that has caused so much misery and damage that now the Biden administration finalizing plans to send the Patriot system. What is the Patriot? It's been in war zones for decades now. It's a missile system that where the radar locks on to an incoming ballistic missile, most likely in this case, and then fires its own missile to be able to target the Russian missile and bring it down. The key is it can target it at a high altitude and a long distance. So the result is the Russian missile is destroyed at some distance before it even gets to a civilian area. That's the whole idea. You know, but make no mistake, this is going to be a very complex undertaking. The system is uh, very difficult. People, uh, Ukrainian troops have to be trained on it, most likely in Germany. They will have to learn maintenance and repair. So this may be a long process while the winter sets in and while those Russian attacks continue, Poppy. Barbara, quickly, given that this could be something that could dramatically change the outcome of the war uh, in Ukraine's favor. Can you help us understand the administration's thinking, why previously they were hesitant because they thought it would be viewed as escalatory and not now? Well, I think it is they are now seeing this week after week pounding uh, that Russian missile forces are inflicting on Ukraine, and they're looking for a way to try and minimize that, let the Ukrainians get a better jump ahead. And again, the Ukrainians have other air defense systems, so if they can network it all together and use it in a more comprehensive way on the battlefield, communicating back and forth, able to target the Russians very quickly, that could be a game changer down the road. Barbara Starr with reporting, exclusive reporting from the Pentagon. Barbara, thank you very much. Sure. Caitlin. Before a sudden downfall that culminated in a court appearance in the Bahamas, Sam Bankman-Fried was viewed as kind of this political darling in Washington. With a large campaign checkbook, SBF, as he is known, could be seen in the White House, the halls of Congress. My goal has been to find ways to have positive impact on the world and, and to maximize that. 
um, and to, to do so by supporting some uh, really fantastic organizations. All of that has changed now that the cryptocurrency mogul has been indicted on eight criminal charges and is facing up to 115 years in prison if he's convicted on all counts. This is one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. In addition to the fraud charges against Sam Bankman-Fried, federal officials say that he conspired to commit multiple violations of campaign finance laws involving donations in the tens of millions of dollars. These contributions were disguised to look like they were coming from wealthy co-conspirators, when in fact, the contributions were funded by Alameda Research with stolen customer money. And all of this dirty money was used in service of Bankman-Fried's desire to buy bipartisan influence and impact the direction of public policy in Washington. Federal records show that in the two years leading up to last month's midterm elections, SBF donated more than $40 million to candidates and campaign groups, including $5.6 million to President Biden's 2020 election effort. According to Federal Election Commission data, Bankman-Fried publicly made 193 donations in the 2021 to 2022 election cycle. Now, a lot of it went to Democrats, but also some Republicans. SPF claimed that to be the second or third biggest donor this year for Republicans, but he was able to shield some of those donations from the public. Earlier this year, he also boasted about how much money he expected to spend in 2024. More than 100 million sort of spread across many races, organizations, but toward the 2024 election. So if that's a floor, what's the ceiling? Like a billion? Might you give a billion? Yeah, I think that's a decent like thing to look at. Now, many of the lawmakers who benefited from SBF's donations are facing questions of their own about returning those donations. As the powerful chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, Maxine Waters, says she wants answers. I'm so deeply troubled to learn how common it was for Bankman Freed and FTX employees to steal from the cookie jar of customer funds to finance their lavish lifestyles. Some lawmakers are giving their donations from SBF to charity, like Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who is the new House Democratic leader. He says he's already donated the $5,800 to the American Diabetes Association. Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow says that she'll also donate the funds to a local charity. But many of the lawmakers have not said what they'll do. Two of SBF's biggest beneficiaries were the House Majority PAC and the Senate Majority PAC, which helped elect Democrats and got about $7 million from him. The Washington Post says that neither group has said whether they plan to return the money. Joining me now to talk about this and the influence that SBF's downfall has had on Washington is Ari Redboard. He's the host of Legal Affairs at TRM. He also has investigated financial crime. He's formally served 11 years in nonpartisan roles at the Department of Justice and at the Treasury Department under the Bush, Obama and Trump administrations. That is quite a track record. But I want to start with what we're talking about, the the Washington aspect of this, and whether or not you believe, based on what you heard yesterday, that SBF has has committed, that he's violated these campaign finance laws. Yeah, what's really interesting, and first, Caitlin, thanks so much for having me. Uh, What's really interesting about this this case, particularly the campaign finance angle, is oftentimes someone will be indicted or charged, and reputationally, members will want to return 
you know, donations or contributions. Here it's very different. This is, th these contributions are part of a large one, you know, as the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York said, uh, an indictment around one of the largest fraud cases in U.S. history. So really what we have here is these contributions are part of a broader criminal case. And what that indictment essentially says is that the defendant here used these commingled funds, used funds that were, were, were taken from users, from, from customers of FTX and used it to make these donations. So it's really part of a broader criminal case here, as opposed to sort of the usual thing that happens on Capitol Hill, where, where someone you know commits a crime or, or something else and, and members want to return the funds. One, one thing to sort of point out at, at, at the beginning of all of this is really, it's an extraordinary case for a number of reasons, but really the speed of the indictment is something that really stands out to me. I mean, here, you know, it seems like forever ago, but really it was only a month ago that we saw the collapse of FTX. And really over the course of that month, we saw agents and investigators and prosecutors obviously, you know, climb through a mountain of evidence, millions of transactions or more, and really ended up packaging that evidence and presenting it to a grand jury and, and, and having an indictment essentially yesterday, plus a detention hearing in the Bahamas. And we'll sort of see what's next here. But the speed of the indictment is really something that stands out for me in what is a relatively complicated uh, criminal investigation. And what you said about this being different when it comes to these political donations, I was reading FEC regulations require that committees have to refund illegal contributions, including those improperly made in the name of another donor. That is exactly what he is accused of doing. So does that mean that they have to give this money back or what is your understanding of that? Yeah, no, I, I, look, I, I think that's right. And I, I think it's one thing that's really important is obviously these are just allegations and these charges are going to play out. And this is all going to take some time. Even we saw yesterday uh, in the detention hearing in the Bahamas, uh, at which point Mr. Bankman-Fried was held pending extradition uh, or, or pending an extradition hearing, will, which will likely be in February. Um, and, and we'll see, you know, a, a few nights in, in the Bahamas may speed, you know, speed up that process. He may want to move more quickly. Uh, we'll see. But I think what we're seeing right now is the very, very, very early stages. Um, but yeah, certainly, uh, I, I think it, it, if these charges play out, if they are proven, uh, if, he's, if he pleads guilty or is convicted at trial, uh, I, I imagine there's a world in which the, these donations would have to be returned. Yeah, well, that's big news for lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Ari, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Comedian Jay Leno giving his first interview since the November accident that left him with severe burns to his face and body. Leno, an avid car collector, spoke with NBC Today's show and uh, spoke about working underneath an anti-car when the accident happened. Watch this. Tell me what happened that day. Well, I was, it was a 1907 uh, white steam car. The fuel line was clogged, so I was underneath it trying to clog it. And I said, uh, blow some air through the line, and suddenly, boom, I got a face full of gas. And then the pilot light jumped and my face caught on fire. And I said to my friend, I said, Dave, I'm on fire. And then, oh my God, Dave, my friend, pulled me out and, and jumped on top of me and, uh, and kind of smothered the fire. Uh, uh, listen, it seems like it just happened. A quick recovery there. Leno was treated at the Grossman Burn Center in Los Angeles, where the doctor said his injuries were a mix of second and possibly third degree burns. He is expected to make a full recovery. We're all glad for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, Jay Leno would say it was a 1907 steam car. Passion. I know. He looks great. And it's had his humor through all of it. I bought um, an old car yeah. and I got Jay Leno's advice. I sent him like. Really? Uh, yeah. Awesome. I sent him links and he's like, don't buy this one. Something's wrong. Cost <laughs> is too low. The price is too low. This one is not great. This one rusts. Aww. If you engage him on cars, he, he seems like the best. Loves it. Yeah, he's a good guy.
Who's that? Is that me? Okay. Uh, a big announcement from the Fed in just hours. We know another rate hike is coming, but with inflation showing, will it be less severe? Also, out of Florida, the governor, Ron DeSantis, is casting doubt on COVID vaccines, questioning what they look like, what's behind it. We'll fact check his claims ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Federal Reserve preparing to wrap up its latest two-day policy meeting in Washington with a highly anticipated decision on interest rates. We're all watching this. Economists are saying that they predict just a half a point rate increase as part of the central bank's efforts to rein in inflation. That's down a little bit from the last four three-quarter point hikes that we saw. The expected boost does mark the seventh time that the Fed has raised interest rates just this year. He is the governor of America's third largest state by population, also a potential candidate for president in 2024. But Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is pushing anti-vaccine rhetoric and uh, starting what he calls an alternative to the CDC. DeSantis has asked Florida's Supreme Court to investigate COVID vaccines. He has dismissed the health advice from federal agencies like the CDC, the FDA and the NIH. The governor has been critical of Dr. Fauci. He has cast doubt on the effectiveness and safety of vaccines. And all of this ironically comes as a new study shows that those vaccines saved more than 3 million lives and kept more than 18 million Americans out of the hospital. But DeSantis and the Surgeon General in Florida made claims still like this. We are initiating a program here in Florida where we will be studying the incidents in surveillance of myocarditis within a few weeks of COVID-19 vaccination for people who die. We will answer this question. It is a question that I'm sure keeps the CEOs of Pfizer and Moderna up late at night, hoping no one ever looks, but we're gonna look here in Florida. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, is with us this morning with the facts and with the science. So that was Dr. Ladapa, who is the Florida Surgeon General, uh, saying that this issue of myocarditis, Sanjay, in people who are vaccinated is under investigation. What are the facts? What do we know? Well, all that, you know, there was a lot in there from Governor DeSantis and the Surgeon General there. Uh, pretty toxic stuff, really casting a lot of doubt on federal governments, but also all these all the independent studies that have been done looking at these issues. One of the things that brought up was brought up there was this idea of myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart after the vaccine versus after the the uh, the infection itself. And sort of across the board, the headline is that you're you're more likely to develop a complication like that after an infection versus the vaccine. And let me, let me show you some of the numbers there. Now, I think this is the study that they must be talking about because this just came out a couple of months ago. But out of, this is ages people uh, 5 to 39, 224 cases of myocarditis out of about 7 million. I'm putting up these numbers here because I want to give you some context of what we're talking about here. 0.0005% likelihood after the first dose, 0.0033% after the second dose, that was the highest. And then there was a increase after the, the booster as well. But again, risk across the board of myocarditis higher after the infection versus the vaccine. That's really important. I mean, these vaccines are to prevent, uh, you know, 
complications. So one thing that they did find was that in men younger than 40, specifically with the Moderna vaccine, they did have higher rates of myocarditis, about 97 cases per million, 0.0097%. Uh, percent. So that, that's obviously still a low percent, but that was the highest. And that was higher in that particular age group with Moderna than people who got the infection. So that is, uh, that is I think, been the source of a lot of this controversy. Moderna, it's specifically men under that age, higher incidence of myocarditis, and there have been suggestions that men of that age should get a different vaccine other than the Moderna vaccine, or they should spread out their doses even further. But that, that what I've just laid out there, and again, I know a lot of numbers, I think has been the genesis of a lot of this controversy over vaccines and myocarditis specifically. Yeah, listen, over the three years that um, we've been doing, it, it is three years, because in China, it started like in November, December, uh, of 19, right? So it's been three years. But it's yep. a two-year anniversary um, of the vaccine. And I know you like to clear up misinformation. There's been a lot of misinformation surrounding all of this. We seem to see data that more people seem to be dying who have been vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And you've written a new essay about this. Why would that be? Explain. Yeah, th this, is, this is really important because if you just look at the raw data, you say, okay, how many people have died in a particular month of COVID? And of those people, how many were vaccinated versus unvaccinated? And if you look at that data, what you will see is that of, for example, 13,000 people died roughly in September, you'll see 7,800 people were vaccinated, 5,200 va uh, unvaccinated. And you'd say, well, look, the vaccines seem to be the problem there. The, the statistical error that people are making is something known as a base rate fallacy. You don't need to remember that. Just remember, you got to look at the denominator. Okay, that's that's the key. How many people in that vaccinated group uh, were there? And there was about 203 million. Let's just put that back up for a second. 203 million were in that vaccinated group. That's 7,800 who died. In the unvaccinated group, there was 5,200 people uh, out of 55 million. Now look at the bottom there. That means in the vaccinated group, there were 38 deaths per million people versus in the unvaccinated, 95 deaths mm -hmm. per million people. Two and a half times greater. That's called a base rate fallacy. It's a lot for seven o'clock in the morning, I realize, but it's important <laughs> to really dig into these statistics. Also, one other quick thing. There's something known as Simpson's paradox, and people can Google this, look it up afterwards. But basically, it's, it's the old causation versus correlation thing. Yes, you're more likely to die from COVID if you're older. We know that. Yes, you're more likely to have been vaccinated against COVID-19 if you're older. That does not mean that vaccination is more likely to lead to death. That's the Simpsons paradox. So people are using these raw numbers and basically making these assertions that the vaccines are not safe, that they are more likely to lead to death. If you just take the extra beat of looking at that data, a, a different picture emerges. Dr. Gupta, um also, I wanted to talk to you about uh, your minivan. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole different study. He doesn't know what you're talking about. We have the, uh, the transportation no, I, secretary. I you saw it. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, go on. But you know what our texts are about. Your minivan all the time. <laughs> I have three teenagers, Dad, I'm not, and I'm not as cool as you. I'm not as cool as you. I think you're pretty cool. <laughs> we think you're cool. I'm just messing with you, doctor. Thank Thanks, you. And, and three beautiful, beautiful you teenagers. Thank you. A, a great family. Thanks, but, Dr. I mean, Gupta. thank God for him I and know, those right? numbers because like, there's so much misinformation out there. I'm glad he points all of that out because there is a lot of misinformation and we need people like Dr. Gupta to point that Base out. And you can check it out. Something. Base rate, I don't denominator. Know. Yeah, right. denominator. Thank you, doc. Check it out. CNN.com. His essay's there. Appreciate it.
Okay, a Republican lawmaker calling out a liberal activist at a congressional hearing discussing threats to democracy for threatening uh, posts the witnesses, the witness, I should say, made in the past. Plus this. Boy band to boot camp, one of the members of BTS is heading off to the military. We'll tell you what's expected there next. These guys are. Did that say WCCO was at Minneapolis? Thanks, guys. Welcome back. Thanks, guys. Missing home this morning. Oh, my gosh. You knew how much I loved home when I signed up for this. All right. So coming up for us this morning, Republican (laughs) Congresswoman Nancy Mace calls out a witness in an oversight hearing on threats to democracy for calling on people to accost Supreme Court justices in public. Plus, you don't want to miss Don's conversation with parents and educators about private and public schools. And the 10th anniversary of Sandy Hook, it is today. Just ahead, you will hear from a survivor now 17 years old. She was in second grade when her school was attacked. Her childhood, she says, was lost as a result. As Poppy was saying, Congresswoman Nancy Mays called out a witness at a House oversight hearing yesterday. It was focused on anti-democratic extremist groups, the threat that they pose to democracy. Mace, as you know, is a Republican congresswoman from South Carolina. She started her time asking the witnesses a few yes or no questions like these. Do you believe that rhetoric targeting officials with violence for carrying out their constitutional duties um, is a threat to democracy, Mr. Ward? Mr. Siegel? Yes. 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 Then Congresswoman Mace turned her attention to Alejandra Caraballo, an LGBTQ rights activist and instructor at Harvard Law, and some of her past tweets. Only a few weeks after the attempted attack on a Supreme Court justice on June 25th, one of the witnesses, Alejandra Caraballo, tweeted out the following in response to a decision on abortion overturning Roe v. Wade, and I'll quote directly from the tweet, the six justices who overturned Roe should never know peace again. It is our civic duty to accost them every time they're in public. They are pariahs. Since women don't have their rights, these justices should never have a peaceful moment in public again. I know something about being accosted. The night of January 5th, I was physically accosted on the streets of DC in Navy Yard by a constituent of mine. I fervently blamed rhetoric rhetoric on social media, rhetoric at public events, for being physically accosted. I carry a gun everywhere I go when I am in my district and I'm at home because I know personally that rhetoric has consequences. I've had my car keyed. I've had my house spray painted. I had someone trespass in my house as recently as August. I've been doxxed on social media about where I live. So my last question today of Ms. Caraballo, do you stand by these comments, this kind of rhetoric on social media, and do you believe it's a threat to democracy? Thank you, Representative, for the opportunity to clarify and provide context to my tweets. Um, I have a question, is it yes or no? Do you believe your rhetoric is a threat to democracy when you're calling to accost 
a branch of government, the Supreme Court. I don't believe that's a correct uh, characterization what of you my tweeted, statements. Though. Did you not tweet that? What happened to the Speaker's husband is every member's worst nightmare. So it's clear to me that we have to call out the threats to our democracy emanating from wherever they come, whether it's the right or the left. Quite a grilling. Yeah. Um, I think she's, listen, we've all had to deal with it. Um, some of us more than others. She obviously, it's awful what, what uh, Mace has had to deal with. But I think it's right. The rhetoric has, has to be toned down. I hope Elon Musk is listening. I hope the people who uh, run social media, I hope they're listening to this. And everyone should have that same energy. Republicans should have the same energy mm-hmm. about if it happens on their side. Democrats should have the same energy if it happens on their side as well, because it has to be toned down what you end up with, people getting hurt, or a January 6th. And you saw it like with Justice Kavanaugh, she was talking about yeah. those tweets. The gun outside his home, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is, I can't wait to see this, yeah. uh, what you did. Okay, so public or private school, the debate is hotter than ever after the effects of the pandemic on schools on learning loss. Don sat down with educators and parents to talk about the state of education in America today. Are you guys affected by all of, you see the rigmarole happening at school board meetings and, you know, about curriculums and does that seep into what you're doing or do you keep above that? So parents, I want you to listen up. This conversation is for you. The effects of the pandemic on schools and learning loss is still playing out all across the country. And after the death of George Floyd, the debate on how race is taught in schools still ongoing. So is the conversation about what books should be in school libraries, plus districts facing continued staffing shortages and strikes. All of this forcing parents to make tough decisions about their kids' education, many of them now choosing private schools. Public school enrollment in the U.S. has dropped since 2019 by the millions, and estimates say that uh, it will continue to decrease into the next decade. It's such a complicated time for parents and educators, so I wanted to hear from them. I want you to listen to this very candid conversation about what this group believes is best for their children. Here it is. So I'm so glad that all of you are here. So let's get right into the conversation with our parents and our educators. I'm going to start with you, Colleen. You have two children, one in private and one in public school. That's a good reason to get started with you. You say both options are good, but you prefer the private school. Tell us about your situation. Why? You know, I think that um, different options are good for different kids. And I uh, definitely prefer the private school for my daughter. She needed a smaller environment. Um, You know, the COVID-19 pandemic is definitely what precipitated the move, but it's just been wonderful for her socially, academically to be in that smaller environment. Um, Also, there's a lot of research about keeping kids in the same place K through eight, and just that's better for them overall than having more transitions with the separate middle school. I think she's somebody who'd benefit from that. But our public school is phenomenal. I'm super happy with that too. I'm a room parent there. I'm there all the time and my son is thriving there. So I think different kids just have different needs. So from, I'm from the South. So from Miss Colleen, we'll go to Miss Chantel. Uh, <laughs> Miss Chantel, you say that you considered public school for your child for a short time. What was it that private, that private school offered that public school in your Pittsburgh community didn't offer for you and your child? I think one of the things that uh, the private school offered was uh, an an additional mentoring support. So there were mentoring programs that were um, available to 
individuals who qualified to help with that transition to high school and with the public schools that we had access to at the time, um, they weren't going to offer the rigor that we were looking for to make sure that they were ready for their next career stages. Beth, listen, I think it's we should go to you because you're an educator, you're a public school teacher and get your response to this. What do you say? Yes, I mean, I've been a teacher in Arizona for over a decade. And, you know, I, I think that um, I've seen the shrinking of resources that we're talking about, but I will absolutely always choose public schools as an educator and as a parent. Um, the main difference is that I see we have qualified, trained professionals. You know, teaching is a science and a profession. Rodney, I want to get you in here because as I understand, you're a private school educator and you say that you would probably never go into public education. <laughs> Why is that? I, I, yes, I'm the head of a private school and I would say for my own self, I would never go into public education because I was a private school product myself. Um, I started in public schools with my youngest age from kindergarten to fifth grade. And then I was Gilman School from sixth grade to 12th grade. So I just believe in and am familiar with private education. Let me ask you this, because um, you, you, say, you say that you think that our educational system is set up to perpetuate classism and that you struggle with that because you feel like that you're part of that. So that's an interesting take. Explain that, please. And I think that goes public and private, right? Some folks have already named that the public education system is really based largely in the neighborhoods and regions that you live in, which we know are stratified by race and by class. That's on the public school side. On the private school side, we know our tuitions are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 a year, and that that creates a class stratification. Why I believe in private education around this my own self, having grown up low income in Baltimore, mm -hmm. one of the things that broke the cycle of poverty for my family was access to private education that put me in a network that then got me from there to Harvard, to Columbia, to a doctorate from GW. Uh, Denise, I want to bring you in. You have been patiently standing by, but I know that you uh, have lots uh, to say here. So uh, let me just inform the viewers, you went to a private religious school. You considered having your son go that route. But he felt like public school was better, was a better fit for him. Uh, you were even willing to pay for private, even though it was beyond your family's reach at the time. Why did you want him to go to a private school? Uh, growing up, uh, going to a private Christian school, I felt that I went to both a private Christian school and a public school. The private school uh, was much further advanced in the studies, uh, the, just in learning. It was much more um, challenging, but yet I learned more in a private school. The class sizes were smaller. Uh, you had more individual attention from the teachers. We sat down as a family and discussed it, and I had suggested a private school uh, just for the benefit of a smaller class size and a better education, and my son just didn't want to do that. He wanted to be in his public school in our area, which is a very good school, I might add. Um, he wanted the option of more sports um, clubs and the diversity that goes along with being in a public school and just being around different people and different cultures, which our county is just phenomenal uh, for uh, different cultures. What about you, Dantanya? 
I'm extremely happy. I have two children in public school and my youngest started taking college courses as a freshman in high school, which kind of shocked me. Um, and previously he was considered underperforming in the private school, oh, wow. but, um, you know, and he had very low self-esteem when he was there too. um, had a teacher that wasn't very, um, understanding, of a different culture and labeled him as something that he wasn't and discovered how bright he was when he got to the public school mm-hmm. and is excelling. He's what do you mean by labeled him as something that he wasn't? Um, my son characterized himself as just, I'm just not smart enough Wow. based on a couple of teachers that he had encountered. He's more shy and reserved and very inquisitive and um, just didn't really fit in at the private school. And um, it affected his grades. He was very disorganized, um, did not perform well, but he was bright and tested and well into all honors um, at the public school and started taking college courses as a freshman. So I'm just going to ask you and you can, um, are are you guys affected by all of, you see the rigmarole happening at school board meetings and, you know, about curriculums and does that seep into what you're doing or do you keep above that and keep your eyes focused on the problem. Go ahead, Beth. In Arizona, you know, we have seen these culture wars played out probably, you know, harder than any other state in the country. And, you know, it's affected our teachers. We have a lot of teachers that are leaving the profession and it's really sad. Um, and, you know, some of the, the people who manufactured these sort of fake CRT crises have said that they wanted to usher in universal vouchers. And we have that in Arizona. We're the first state that has. And I want to point out that um, right now, that's just subsidizing the people who are already choosing private school. Our public school enrollment keeps going up. Mm-hmm. So our class sizes are growing. I just think it's important to point out that 92% of our families are choosing public schools in Arizona, even when offered a free voucher to private school. Yeah, I see two people who are shaking their, well, three, I should say, Rodney, Dantanya, and Colleen are like, yes, 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 whatever. Uh, so Rodney first. You know, I'm thinking about your, your question and the, and the answer around the, the curriculum and the pushback. Independent schools are definitely seeing that. And remember that most private schools, as we know it, started as white flight schools that were leaving public education so they could buffer themselves from some of the diversity and some of the curricular innovation that we've been talking about this morning. And so now as the country sort of rolls back into conservatism, we are seeing some independent school parents push back. What I love about our schools is we're seeing our schools stand firm to say, again, these are the values that we are professing as a school. And the great thing about independent schools is these are the values that you literally brought into. And so um, it's, it's an interesting tension there. Um, with the private schools, because, of course, no one has to be in our schools. People choose to be. So, uh, Colleen, I want to get to you because I'm wondering if you're caught in the middle because you're a private and public school parent. I saw you shaking your head vigorously as well when Beth said that that sort of thing about CRT and all that has seeped in. And you were saying, yeah. I was, yeah, I was thinking more just I thought it was interesting about the vouchers. And I think that I, you know, we obviously we don't have vouchers in Virginia, but what I think is interesting is that when you have choice, right, um, I think that both sides are incentivized to improve and really do their best. And I wonder sort of what the relationship is there in Arizona. I can tell you in our community, you know, because the public schools are so great that 
in order to be a successful, thriving private school, you've got to be really, really great for somebody to want to pay on top of that. So I I think that's kind of interesting. I I agree that we have choices and we've always had choices. The bottom line is who pays for your choice? And by intentionally taking away from the funding of public school education, the taxpayer dollars, the common good, the common pot, the common agreement that we're going to pay for Mm -hmm. resources and allocating it to people who would already make choices to opt out of the public school system is very important because now we're under-resourcing the highest need families for people and subsidizing people who would already pay for where they would go. Thank you. I appreciate it. And up next on CNN, take a look at that. We're going to take you live to Louisiana, which was struck by tornadoes overnight. You're watching CNN This Morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Good morning. We're halfway through the week. Halfway through. It is Wednesday, December 14th. Welcome, everyone. Uh, We have a lot to get to this morning, so we have to catch you up immediately on the five things that you need to know today, right now. The framework of a budget deal that funds the federal government for a full year has bipartisan support in Congress. But Republican leader Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy... They're at odds over the breakthrough. McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, says that he is a hell no on a one-year agreement, but the measure is expected to pass. A tornado barreled across northern Louisiana overnight, killing a child. Now a search is underway for the mother, who is also missing this morning. At least 20 people have been injured when this twister just ripped through a mobile home park in Farmerville. We'll show you the scene in just a moment. 13 for 13, Ukraine's President Zelensky says all 13 attack drones launched by Russia against Kyiv today were shot down. And this comes as the Pope is suggesting all of us buy fewer Christmas presents and instead donate to Ukraine. Well, this morning, the so-called crypto king Sam Bankman uh, freed remains in a jail in the Bahamas. His bond denied with the judge calling him a flight risk. Uh, it's uh, court in court on Tuesday. An attorney for Frank Bankman Freed claimed his client has long suffered from depression, insomnia and attention deficit disorder. Back here in the U.S., Bankman Freed has been indicted on eight criminal charges. The last semifinal, semifinal match at the World Cup kicks off this afternoon. Reigning champion France will take on underdog Morocco for the chance to play Argentina in the final on Sunday. So this morning, officials on high alert at the U.S.-Mexico border. The Biden administration is sending more agents to El Paso, Texas, over concerns about the recent migrant surge there. This, as a Trump-era policy called Title 42, is set to expire a week from today. Nineteen GOP-led states are asking a federal appeals court to keep Title 42 in place, which allowed the U.S. to quickly expel asylum seekers at the border. El Paso's city manager saying they are at a breaking point. Title 42 going away with the numbers we're seeing today is a is a true emergency for the community. It's a federal crisis that's happening within the in the border of El Paso. So let's get straight to CNN's Ed Lavendera live for us at the El Paso, in El Paso, Texas, I should say. Ed, good morning uh, to you. You have been on the ground in El Paso. What are you seeing there? 
Well, you know, as the city manager there alluded to, there's a great deal of concern about what is going to happen next week uh, if Title 42 is officially lifted. Uh, right now, over the last few days, what we have seen is uh, about an average of 2,500 migrants crossing the border into the El Paso area. This is separate from the issue of Title 42. Uh, and what we are hearing from officials here in El Paso is that uh, shelters are over capacity. Uh, the uh, processing centers with uh, Border Patrol are also over capacity as well. So that is raising a great deal of concern about what is going to happen next week. And city officials here are sounding the alarm. What, what we need to do here, I think, is um, much more than, than what we're doing at this point. We need people to step up. We need to stop pointing fingers. We need to work together. We need to collaborate. And we need to, to make sure that we keep um, folks that are passing through our, neighbor, our neighborhood safe while also keeping our communities safe as well. And, and Don, the Biden administration is predicting that uh, when, if Title 42 is lifted, there could be as many as nine to 14,000 people crossing the uh, U.S. southern border uh, next week. That is what they are preparing for. Uh, officials and the DHS officials said yesterday they are sending more agents here and as well as a thousand uh, processing officers that will help uh, handle the number of people that are coming across the border. But there is a growing sense of concern about what is going to unfold here next week, Don. Ed, where exactly are these migrants looking to go and where would they go after being deported? You know, it's, it's interesting. We were in a shelter last night, and, and so there are a number of people because of Title 42 who are being expelled and immediately returned uh, you know, back to Mexico. But there are people uh, who are uh, given uh, processing papers and court dates, immigration court dates, to appear uh, in, in so, you know, several months from now. Uh, we spoke with a number of people who told us they've been traveling to or planning to travel to places like Georgia, Pennsylvania, New York. So uh, they're actually spending very little time here in border communities moving on to other destinations where they might already have family members or, uh, you know, uh, friends who have already set up or established some, some sort of roots. So th that's what we're hearing a lot from, from the migrants that we've sp spoken with. Eleven Darren, El Paso, Texas, for us this morning. Thank you, Ed. Caitlin? All right, a bipartisan group of lawmakers on this subject is now, are now urging President Biden to extend Title 42. They warn that lifting it next week will result in a complete loss of operational control over the southern border, and they believe it'll have a profoundly negative impact on these border communities. One of the lawmakers who represents those communities is Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar. He represents a southwest border district and joins us now. Congressman, if Title 42 ends as scheduled, you know, how much more difficult does managing the migrant crisis become, do you believe? Communities are going to be overwhelmed, not only in Paso. We've seen that in the past with uh, Rio Grande Valley. We've seen it in Eagle Pass, Del Rio. They're going to be overwhelmed. They're just not enough shelters and, and border processing centers to handle the large numbers of people. And what Border Patrol is doing, it's almost like a whack-a-mole in, in, in the sense that if there's a surge in the valley, they'll move people down there. If there's, uh, if there's more people crossing uh, during, uh, the, let's say, the Rio Eagle Pass and move uh, agents over there, now they're moving agents to uh, El Paso. So it's really, this is not the way to secure the border. Look, we can do two things at the same time. We can provide a, a, a compassionate way of treating the uh, the uh, immigrants are trying to come in. But at the same time, we have to secure the border because the only thing that the Border Patrol is doing is processing a lot of them to come into the U.S. and then returning some of them 
under Title 42. If Title 42 goes away, this is going to just open up uh, a lot of large numbers of people coming to border communities. And do you think the Biden administration understands that sense of urgency? You know, I, I, I don't think they do, or if they do, they just have a very different perspective. Look, it's okay to listen to immigration activists. It's okay to do that. That's one perspective. But who's listening to the men and women in green and blue? And more importantly, who's listening to our border communities? I live in Laredo, Texas. I live in the border. And, and, and again, I don't just go visit there. I know and I talk to the mayors, our county judges, commissioners, landowners, other folks there, and nobody's listening, or should I say the administration is not listening to them. You know, it's, it's about time that they pay attention to border communities. Would it help if they placed new limits on asylum seekers? Well, it's not a matter of putting limits on asylum seekers. It's how you process those asylum seekers. Look, if you put 100 people in front of an immigration judge, and by the way, the immigration courts are overwhelmed. There's about a backlog of 1.9 million cases. That's years, years in the future before they can really have their day in court. But but what we're looking at is if you put 100 people in front of an immigration judge, 88 to 90 percent are going to be rejected. So why are we not doing this? Why are we not saying that if there's an asylum seeker coming in from another country and they pass a third country? And I've been talking about this for about four, five years where they can yeah. seek asylum somewhere else. Why is the U.S. the only place that they can get away from persecution. There's a lot of countries on the way over here uh, that they can ask for that, or they can do it in an orderly process, ask for asylum in one of our consulates or embassies abroad. There's a, it, it's gotta be orderly. What you see in El Paso, what you saw in Eagle Pass, Rio, what you've seen in the Valley, I don't call that orderly, and I don't understand why the administration doesn't understand that. I want to be constructive. I want to work with them to address this issue. And Congressman, you saw DHS Secretary Mayorkas at the border. Do you think it would help if President Biden himself came to El Paso, came to the border to see this firsthand? Look, uh, yes, uh, absolutely. I, I, I think I, I don't know why they keep avoiding the border uh, and say there's other things more important than visiting the border. If there's a crisis, show up, just show up. Uh, I think part of the battle is if he just shows up and says, I'm going to be working on this and on this, just showing up at the border uh, would send a strong signal to the communities that uh, he's there, he cares about the border communities. Just show up. It doesn't take much to just show up at the border. And Congressman, while we have you this morning, before we let you go, Sam Bankman-Fried, as you've seen, has been indicted on several criminal charges. It's raising questions about the political donations he's made. I believe he's donated to you. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but can you tell me? Uh, uh, I, I think you're uh, incorrect on that. I think you're not correct. Uh, as far as I know, they have not donated to me. I don't okay. even know who the person is. I, I'm so glad you cleared that up because we've been looking at the donations he's made. Puck has reported that he had donated to you. Do you want to see fellow Democrats and Republicans that he donated to all return those donations or donate them to charities like we've seen some do? Yes, I, I think they should uh, return it to uh, charity. All right, Congressman, thank you so much on two very important topics this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much.
Kaylin, great interview. All right, a deadly and destructive tornado tore through northern Louisiana last night. Officials outside of Shreveport say one child was killed. That child's mother is still missing this morning after the tornado struck Cotto Parish. At least 20 people were injured when the tornado moved through a mobile park, mobile home park in Farmerville. We got in the shower, like I said, and then all of a sudden, by the time we got hunkered down here, it was gone, the roof was gone. And, you know, they always say that you hear a train coming. Well, this was a big train to come through here. CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam joins us live this morning. And when you joined us at the beginning of the program, you know, the sun was not up. Now it is, and you see a whole lot more. Yeah. Yeah, Poppy, we are seeing some of this uh, devastating and simply heartbreaking damage that was left behind by these devastating tornadoes here in northern Louisiana. You're just seeing a, really a small drop in the bucket because we are still not permitted to go to the mobile home park uh, that was directly hit behind me here. But we're in uh, Union Parish. This is uh, just northwest of Monroe, uh, Louisiana. And uh, you can see just some of the memories left over of children's toys, uh, typical shrapnel, the tops of roofs and buildings, electrical wires, uh, you name it. Uh, this is what we would typically see within uh, a, a devastating tornado. But what you're not seeing behind me because of our restrictions within this particular area uh, is the impacted uh, mobile home community that's uh, behind me. And we talked to an eyewitness uh, who gave us some firsthand accounts. They came across some individuals this morning uh, who literally Literally, were confused walking out of the woods, talking about how their uh, their mobile home was swept into the woods, and uh, just being completely disoriented after this tornado struck just moments uh, after that particular uh, devastating and, and terrifying uh, uh, thing for them to to, to take place. Uh, there are cadaver dogs and uh, search and rescue uh, operations that are still ongoing here, as is typical with any kind of uh, tornado damage that uh, we would see across the country. But uh, the National Weather Service is uh, en route to come here and assess uh, how much, uh, how powerful the winds were in uh, this uh, Union Parish tornado that has left the path of destruction that you see directly behind me. Poppy? Derek Van Dam, thank you for being there. We're thinking of everyone there, of course, this morning. In a, just a second, split second, everything is gone. Yeah. Their lives have yeah. changed forever. And I hate when they hit overnight because it makes it that much harder, so much harder. To, to get to safety. All right, this morning, an L.A. City Council meeting erupted into chaos as the public outcry for one of the members to step down has been growing over racist remarks that he and other members made about a colleague's black child. His residents um, demanded his resignation. His colleagues have demanded his resignation. The president of the United States has demanded his resignation. Um, and his own hubris is the only thing that's keeping him in office. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I mean, look, that is a Los Angeles City Council meeting erupting in chaos as calls for the resignation of the embattled council member Kevin DeLeon grow. 
So he has refused to step down after he was caught on a leaked tape with other council members making racist remarks about a young black child of one of his colleagues. The other council members who participated in that meeting have either resigned or are leaving. De Leon is under renewed scrutiny after he was caught on camera getting into a physical altercation with a community activist during a holiday event. In an exclusive interview with CNN's Kate Baldwin, De Leon defended his decision not to resign. Here's part of it. In a democracy, the voters make the decision. Uh, not folks uh, who are in the peanut gallery or political pundits or uh, even my own colleagues. You know, tens of millions of Americans go to work every single day with folks that they don't like. But you know what they do every morning? They get up and they go to work. And they don't have the luxury, perhaps, of some folks do when they want to walk out. I'm here to do the business of my constituents. And that's what I've worked for tirelessly. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. Fascinating interview. We want to talk more about it now. There she is in this interview with CNN anchor Kate Baldwin joining us uh, here. And as well, CNN anchor and correspondent Adi Cornish. So, so glad to have um, both of you on. So listen, it was back and forth. This is craziness that's happening. He said... And you took it out of context, that remark, and you showed him the evidence. So there's a whole lot that went into this entire thing, right? This all started in October when this leaked tape came out, and we went, and then and I brought it up to him, and he said that the media had been taking out of context, and as anyone would, we played it in context. Um, but my big takeaway, the reason I wanted to speak with Kevin DeLeon is there were kind of two questions, which is, what were you thinking and what are you thinking now? Like, what are you going to do about it now? Because at the end of the day, this may be a city council. This may be some people might think this is a local issue, but it's like the second largest city in America and a city like so many others that has huge issues. I mean, homelessness, and that's something that Kevin spoke to me about, but huge issues that need to be addressed. And I'm curious to know how much the council member, the council, how well the council is actually working when essentially it's locked up because every time they get together, there's protests. De Leon didn't show up for 60 days, then he shows up. And the way Elsie Granderson put it to me is the city's essentially been held hostage because of how this has all played out. I mean, and he said, it's up to the voters to decide my political future. And he says tens of millions of Americans go to work every single day with folks that they don't like, which <laughs> look, it may be true that people don't like the folks that they work with, but there is a real question of how well these people are actually working to do the people's business at this point. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think two things that are interesting about that interview is one, we're in the post-shame period for politicians. So there is a school of thought that says you kind of ride it out, you know, no matter how bad it seems like it gets, because there's sort of evidence, let's just say at the highest levels, that that can be done. And so there's a different thinking than before that you yeah. should just get out. And right? different reactions from the exactly. other people who were caught on the tape having this racist conversation. Some of the council members resigned, and he is definitely not. Exactly. Do you think he should resign? I think that there's a broader context about um, Latino power in the city, um, about who has the power uh, in sort of the different groups who are jockeying for power on the council and in the city itself, which is why this thing that seems tiny, right? Like some people saying some racist or inappropriate things, some fighting, it seems really goofball, but it's really about who is in control of this city, who can have the airport in their district, who can have the jobs there, and that's why it's seems um, so tightly held and why people are so passionate about it. That was one of the questions that I don't 
really feel that there was fully an answer to, which was what were you, he has apologized and says that he's trying to make amends to try to move forward and do the, do the people's business. But what is the mistake that he is apologizing for? Was it the language, which he seems to allude to, though he says it was taken out of context and he was not trying to make fun of the young black son of one of the council members? Or was it the entire purpose of the conversation, which was caught on tape, which was um, Latino Democrats coming together to try to work the redistricting in their system favor, in right. their favor yeah. and, to and expressing resentments and right. to dilute the power of black voters in the process. Yeah. That yeah. is not answered. And in your interview, what you just said there and about politicians writing it out, he didn't even seem to acknowledge what he actually said. He said, you know, I wish I'd stood up. I wish I had more constructive conversations. And you said you compared a, a young black child to a, a luxury handbag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's key to the non-apology. You'll see this very frequently. Never repeat the words um, that you are on tape doing. We've seen this in many other contexts. Um, always kind of just ride above it and talk about how it's really the voters' decisions, X, Y, and Z. Someone write a book on this because it's definitely a sort of new way of thinking in political PR and crisis management of how to get through it. The only, do we, I mean, I don't know what other piece of sound that we have pulled, but there's more from the conversation, if, if you guys want to run it, of kind of that part of it when he believes he's taken out of context. And yeah, then he's he basically just saying that it was an artful way of criticizing a fellow. Yeah. There's no good way to compare a kid to a purse. So it's sort of hard to make that work. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, there's just no scenario where that works, but the, he tried it. The reason this is also really interesting is there's not there's really nothing that the council can do. The council censured him. They've kind of taken away some of his power on the committee. But it also gets back to, as he said, it does get back to the voters to decide. There's a recall effort underway. It's expensive. It's going to take time. They need to get some 20,000 votes from his district to sign on to move this forward. His term is through December of 2024. So there's a lot of time in between, obviously, now and then. And at its most basic, it is kind of a study it is you're saying, Audie, in how to react to a crisis. But when you are the continued center of the crisis, right? he had said, we need to get up and go to work. Yeah. But is, is he doing the work to try to make amends in order to do the people's business? Yeah. Again, they get to figure it out. Teaching politicians could be a very lucrative business. So don't go into it, though, because we like you having, having you here. <laughs> Kate Baldwin, Audie Cornish, thank you both Good for joining guys. us. You Good can morning. watch Kate just a few hours from now on at this hour at 11 a.m. All right, sports journalist Grant Wall's sudden, recent, tragic death um, shocked all of us, shocked everyone, shocked the sports world. The 49-year-old died Friday after collapsing while covering the World Cup in Qatar. The circumstances around his death still unclear, and now his widow, Dr. Celine Gounder, is remembering her husband and revealing Mm -hmm. how he died. Listen to her. I think for him, soccer was more than just a sport. It was this thing that connected people around the world. Um, There's so much about the culture, the politics of sport, of soccer. Um, To him, it was a way of really understanding people and where they were coming from. I I want people to remember him as this kind, generous person who was really dedicated to social justice. Uh, You know, I think that's another aspect of soccer that was really important to him that, you know, promoting the women's game, you know, the recent statements he had made about LGBT rights, that was, that was Grant. Mm -hmm. That was Grant. Mm -hmm. 
So he had an autopsy done here in New York by the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, and it showed that he had an aortic aneurysm um, that ruptured. Which means what? Okay. So aorta, that's the big blood vessel that comes out of your heart, sort of the trunk of all the blood vessels. And uh, an aneurysm is a ballooning of the uh, blood vessel wall, and so it's weak. And it's just one of these things that had been likely brewing for years. Um, and for whatever reason, it happened at this point in time. Let's bring in CNN Oof. Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. It is, as Don said, I mean, just her to have the strength to come on and to speak about her beloved yeah. husband. Um, can you help us understand what happened to him now that she has told the world? Uh, yeah, it, it's it's so sad, and, and um, you know, uh, Grant Wall is one of these people who I also would communicate with from time to time via Twitter, and he was just, uh, I got so many texts about him. But what, what Celine, who was a medical uh, contributor to CNN as well, what she was talking about was the, the major blood vessel uh, called the aorta uh, leaves the heart, and it then gives off tributaries to all these other organs in the body. Um, sometimes that blood vessel itself, and I don't know if we have an image of it, um, but it can actually start to weaken. It's made up of all these layers, and some of the layers are weakened. So it actually, instead of being sort of, you see that sort of in the middle of the screen, that candy cane looking structure, instead of being normal sort of contour like that, it'll actually start to get uh, a balloon, become the shape of a balloon. And that balloon is weaker. As the walls sort of distend, the walls become weaker as well. And with time, uh, it can rupture, meaning that those walls can actually break apart, or you can get blood that actually dissects uh, through the walls of the aorta. Either way, it can be a catastrophic problem. Um, I will say that it's, it's pretty unusual uh, it typically happens in people who are older, and there's really not some sort of way that he probably knew that he had this. Unless he was uh, had a family history or was being screened for some reason, it is likely he didn't know this. From what I understand, he was having what sounded, he thought it, they were upper respiratory symptoms. He thought he had bronchitis. And sometimes that ballooning can become so large, it can actually start to push on other things in that part of your body, Doctor. in the chest. So people may develop cough or, or a weakness of voice and things like that, and it's a totally different problem. Before yeah. we run out of time, I just, sorry, I, I just wanna, because I wanna make sure we get this in. People at home who are watching, uh, and I keep looking at the picture of Celine and Grant playing, it's just devastating. Is there anything, can you go to the doctor? Can you, is there a checkup? Is there, is, is there any way to know about something like this? There is. I mean, you can be screened for this sort of thing, you know, with, with imaging tests and things like that. But the thing is that it's so rare that, that it's not recommended that people go out and, and get screened. About 20% of the time, there is a family history. So if you have family history of this, then that's something that you should um, uh, potentially get checked out. And you can do that with imaging tests. Um, I will point out, you know, one thing, one of the first stories I covered here at CNN back in 2003 was actually the story of John Ritter dying. He was yes. 54 years old. Yep. Remember John Ritter? Mm -hmm. And he basically had the same problem. He was a few years older than Grant is now, but basically the same problem. They thought it was a heart attack initially. They weren't sure. Ended up being a, an a, a aortic aneurysm that had dissected, similar to what Celine was describing. Again, that's rare. So screening tests are not recommended across the board, but you know, obviously these sad, sad stories like this do happen. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. Appreciate it. And I know yeah. um, Got it. Celine watches us. She texts. So we're thinking about you, mm -hmm. Celine. We're so, so sorry. Absolutely. Sorry.
It's hard to believe, but it has been 10 years since Sandy Hook. Up next, we're gonna talk to a survivor. She hid in a coat closet with 17 of her little classmates. She's now 17 years old, and she says she lost her childhood that day. Second graders who survived the Sandy Hook shooting and about to enter college. They're all about to enter college, right? Well, today marks 10 years since the unthinkable struck Newtown when 21st graders and six adults were murdered at school. And it seems certain that lawmakers would right away after that pass meaningful gun violence legislation. Well, this was President Obama after Congress rejected a bipartisan proposal to expand background checks in 2013. There were no coherent arguments as to why we wouldn't do this. It came down to politics. So all in all, this was a pretty shameful day for Washington. And since then, school shootings have sadly become more common in America, including in Uvalde, that massacre at their school this year, a chilling echo of Sandy Hook. And since Columbine in 1999, the Washington Post reports more than 323,000 students have experienced gun violence at their school. Our next guest survived the Sandy Hook shooting. She was a second grader at the time. She hid from the gunman in a classroom coat area with 17 of her classmates. Her first grade teacher, her favorite teacher, was murdered that day. Serena Arokiam is now 17. She's about to go to college, and she says her childhood was taken away from her. She has become an advocate and an activist for Newtown Action Alliance. She also met with senators last week about gun legislation she says she wants others to experience a normal childhood, and Serena joins me now. Serena, good morning, and thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Poppy. Um, yes, and I think it's so important to this from happening and just prevent gun violence as a whole from happening and to help our future generations continue to thrive. That day, 10 years ago, you lost so many people you loved. Um, and I know you lost your favorite teacher. We have, we have pictures of her. Could you tell people what she meant to you? Yes. She was very kind. She was sweet. She was loving. She was caring. And most of all, she was just an important person to me because she was so special. And I remember her and her pink flamingos and like what they stood for to her and what they meant to her. That was that is right there. You see the images. That was Victoria Soto, a name we've come to know so well. Um, I wonder what today means for you as we I hate saying the word anniversary. This is not an anniversary. There's nothing. This is a tragedy. But it's 10 years later. I remember so well being in Newtown in the wake of it. What do you make of where this country is 10 years later? Um, it's definitely difficult, especially seeing all these other school shootings and especially after Uvalde, which hit close to home because it was so similar to Sandy Hook. Um, it really affected me because I, I felt like I failed. And just to know that like something so similar happened again is very tiring. You feel like you failed. Didn't yes, you didn't did. you did not fail. You go to Washington, you meet with senators, you meet with lawmakers. It's not it's not you um, who has failed. But why do you carry that weight? 
Um, well, first of all, it's just so hard to experience a school shooting and to relate to other survivors as well. And I think it's so important to keep fighting for um, the assault weapons ban as well and just to keep children and young adults alive. You know, you went uh, to that vigil, right, just a few matter of days ago where President Biden spoke. And I want people to listen to what he said there. And the context of this is that he has said in recent weeks, the president, that he is once again pushing for an assault weapons ban. Listen to this. The work continues to limit the number of bullets that can be in a cartridge, the type of weapon that can be purchased and sold, but still not enough. Still not enough. He's pushing for more. And then this was President, former President Obama just last week. Listen. Perhaps the most bitter disappointment of my time in office, the, the, the closest I came to being cynical was the utter failure of Congress to respond in the immediate aftermath of the Sandy Hook shootings. What do you think, Serena? Do you think now Congress will act to pass more gun violence legislation? I have hope. I definitely do. And I think we just need to keep pushing them forward to pass these legislations to improve our communities and make them much safer. I was struck specifically about one thing that you've been doing um, when it comes to, to black children, especially. You said, I'm trying to help communities of color to help prevent black people from dying from, from guns, because we know a disproportionate number of those impacted by school shootings are people of color. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm trying to help these communities because it's important for children to grow up and live a normal childhood and experience a childhood that like I never had because of, it was taken away from me because of Sandy Hook. And I just want to help all communities, no matter what, to help improve their safety and to help kids thrive. And before we go, can you share with people what you want to become after college? Because I think it's so appropriate that you want to heal people. I want to become a cardiothoracic surgeon, which is a heart and lung surgeon. We are cheering you on all the way. Um, Serena, thank you for being here and for, for standing up and fighting and going to Washington and making your voice heard thinking about you today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So all of you are going to want to watch tonight because our friend and colleague Allison Camerata is hosting a CNN special report, Sandy Hook Forever Remembered. That is 10 o'clock Eastern tonight. Back in a moment. Arizona Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray is out for the entire NFL season after suffering a torn ACL. Murray is just the latest on a growing list of NFL stars to suffer this fate in recent days. Players on the Bills, Cowboys, Steelers, just to name a few. Let's turn now to our senior data reporter, Harry Data Enton, for this morning's number. Here is the question, Harry. So there's at least four NFL players out there, right, over the last week that are now out for ACL injuries. What's going on here? Is it yeah. on the rise or is it just... 
Coincidence? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I love these types of questions because they're kind of great mysteries. And, you know, one of those, Vaughn Miller, who is a big player, my Buffalo Bills, really hurt my heart. So let's take a look at the numbers, right? Here are the NFL players currently with ACL injuries, according to the USA Sports data set. This is not the official NFL data that will not be produced until the end of the year. But right now, according to USA Today, at least 40 players, 40 players are out with ACL injuries with four regular season games to go for each team. Now, let's look at back at past seasons at the official NFL data. And it will show that, in fact, what we see is that 2021 had more ACL tears than any other recent season, 71. That far eclipses the previous record in 2018 with 57. So it does seem that at least in 2021, the ACL injuries were in fact on the rise. We'll see when the official data is produced in 2022, what it actually shows. But at least in 2021, it did show that the ACL injuries were rising. Now, why would more ACL injuries make sense? Because we have quicker players and bigger players. And in those non-contact injuries, that in fact can lead to more ACL injuries. Is artificial turf really a factor here? Yes. So... The NFL says that there's now no difference between turf and grass, but there was one pre-2020. The NFL Players Association cites the same data that, that, to say that grass is, in fact, safer. So there's a little bit of a mystery, but there's no doubt, historically speaking, artificial turf did, in fact, lead to more ACL injuries. Thanks, Harry. I don't think Kaylin's buying it, though. A lot of players themselves and their families have said that they believe the turf, maybe not just for ACLs, specifically injuries, but they have said that they do believe it. it's more harmful to the players. Yeah harder on their bodies. You feel like you should do this. <laughs> Come on. The college football. <laughs> this is actually Love sad, this though. This, is, this, yeah. is, I, this happened right after the show ended yesterday, yeah. and I, I gasped. It's war- mourning one of its most colorful, colorful personalities, Mike Leach. He was known for his sense of humor that you just, you don't see it anywhere, not in sports, nowhere. This weather report here, what do I know? I'm a football coach. <laughs> I suggest you go out and do what I do. Get out of bed, go outside, then you know. In an interview with ESPN two years ago, Mississippi State football coach Mike Leach was asked how he'd like to be remembered when his obituary was written. When people write the Mike Leach obituary, we hope uh, that's many years from now, many, many years from now. How do you want to be remembered? Well, that's their problem. They're the one writing the obituary. I mean, what do I care? I'm dead. The only regret I'll have is that I didn't get to do more things. The sports world is remembering that characteristically dry humor after Leach died Monday at age 61 following complications from a heart condition. Coach Leach was known as an innovator in the sport. His refined air raid offense at Texas Tech, Washington State, Mississippi State, it's one of the first things that comes to mind. But he's also being remembered for so much more than his three decades of college coaching. It seems everybody has a Coach Leach story, mainly because of comments like this. First of all, what kind of mythical powers does a Sun Devil have? We've got to consider that. I'm going to say the Wildcat's out. Uh, the Trojan, is he, does he have a horse or is he on foot? Does he have a bow and arrow or just his sword? My favorite weather pattern happens to be 
when it rains mud. I love it. I go out there. I look at it. I watch it. Worst thing about it, you have to wash your car. Who cares? It's worth seeing. Trust me. See, I'm going to get my grandkids one of these things so that they can, uh, you know, my daughter and her husband, they need to hear this because I went through years of random noises. Now, on Monday, it says bad stuff, serious storms. Well, you're going to be dead in 100 years anyway. Live dangerously. I would go opposite of that. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little mustache. Oh, yeah, there we go. Coach, Minshew mania, the mustache sensation has taken over Pullman and much of the country. How can you describe what he has meant to this team? Well, I don't know. I don't even think he had a mustache when I recruited him. I don't recall. This weather report here, what do I know? I'm a football coach. <laughs> I suggest you go out and do what I do. Get out of bed. Go outside. Then you know. <laughs> There's truly no one like him. Like, it's such a cliche. Every cliche about my cliche, it's true. Yeah. When, um, when the news that he passed um, came yesterday, Andy Scholes emailed me, our sports reporter, and he covered him for two years. And, and he said, after an interview one time, I, Andy told him he was going to propose to his girlfriend. <laughs> and Mike gave Andy all this advice. He said, do it on the phone to alleviate any pressure. <laughs> He then went on a long rant telling me to elope to avoid all the nagging questions about flowers, music, seating, and told me whenever, whatever answer I give about any of it wouldn't be good enough and I'd get more questions. That was him, right? He, he's funny. And, you know, everyone remembers his funny comments, but he was a, a very smart guy. You know, he finished in almost the top of his class at Pepperdine in law school. He, he was obsessed with Geronimo and his approach to leadership. He, he thought about things like that in a, this existential way that was just... It's so much more than coaching, but he was such a funny coach. I like his attitude. Why do I care? I'm dead. He's like, why do I care about what they say in my obituary? I don't care. Seems it's like a, not it's a, a big ego. Is that, that right? That is a great attitude yeah, no, to have. Yeah, that's his humor. Like yeah. that, but that was really his attitude. He's yeah. like, whatever. Yeah. Um, I loved what Arizona Cardinals coach uh, Cliff Kingsbury said. He said the sport was better because of him, and it's far less interesting without him. Aww. So just think of his wife Sharon and, and their kids this morning. All of them. Nice tribute. Nice tribute to him. Okay, up next, from boy band to boot camp, one of the members of BTS heading off to the military. Hear what they are expected to see. Boy, what a busy show. And I just want to say to my home state, people are going to be waking up now. The sun's coming up to... Lots of devastation, so we are thinking about you this morning. We're thinking about Celine Gounder. We're thinking about the life of your coach friend and the family. And the Newtown so, families. And the Newtown families as well on the 10th anniversary. So we appreciate you joining yeah. us. We are always glad you're with us. We will see you back here tomorrow morning. Newsroom is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.